Hello, my name is Conrad Kinch and this is Send 3 and 4 pence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books and the law as we shamble hopefully towards eternity. Hello and welcome to another episode of Send 3 and 4 pence. Now this episode is going to be a bit of a change for Send 3 and 4 pence, as this episode won't be about gaming. Today, I'm going to talk about one of my other interests, which is the law. Now, what is the difference between being prosecuted and getting sued? What does beyond a reasonable doubt mean? Why do the police investigate some breaches of law, but not others? If you watch legal dramas like The Good Wife or Boston Legal, you probably have a hazy notion about what some of those terms mean, and hopefully... By the time we've reached the end of this podcast, you'll have a clearer understanding of the answers to those questions, and hopefully it will give you a better understanding than watching an episode of Law & Order. Did you hear that? Just when I said Law & Order. It just did it again. Law and Order. Right, uh, better not do that again, or we might get sued. Um, So specifically, we're talking today about the difference between the civil law and criminal law. This will be a simple introduction for people with no background in law and will necessarily be a partial explanation. There are going to be edge cases that don't fall into the simple categories that I propose here. But what I'm hoping to do is provide you with a rough guide, something that's true enough most of the time to be useful to most people most of the time just so that if you do read about a case in the news or see something on telly you can understand it a little bit better okay now with that in mind this episode comes with a bit of a health warning i am not a lawyer nor do i play one on on tv i am an interested and curious layman with some legal training and experience secondly my experience is with the irish legal system which is called a common law jurisdiction. So we, like most other English-speaking countries, such as the UK, the USA, barring the great state of Louisiana, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, um, in that our laws have their roots in the English legal system. Now, that's not to say that our legal systems are identical, but they do work in roughly speaking the same way. Um, so common law jurisdictions tend to agree on what the purpose of law is, what we think of as legal principles and generally speaking just how we approach things is similar. The name common law refers to the old unwritten laws of England which have existed from roughly the time of the Norman conquest or at least were first written down at that point. Um, Now if you're looking for a guide to the law of France, China or Saudi Arabia you won't find it here and I am not the chap to help you on your quest but if you are from China, Saudi Arabia or France, and you would like to learn a little bit about how those crazy English speakers do law, this this will give you some background. Okay, now, before we go any further, I would like to be clear about a term which might confuse some of you, the term civil law. So when I'm talking about civil law in this episode, I'm talking about the civil law as it exists in the common law world, and not the civil law as it exists in Europe. The civil law is the legal system in France and most other European countries. Now, The European civil law has its roots in the law of the Roman Empire and to a lesser extent the Code Napoleon, which was the legal system before uh, Napoleon Bonaparte turned up and started wrecking the place. Um, And this isn't the place to go into the many differences that there are between 
the civil law in Europe and the common law of the English-speaking world, except to note that the European civil law is generally derived from statute, that is written laws. Um, the common law also has statutes, but also makes use of case law, which is otherwise known as judge-made law. Um, now, judge-made law makes use of a concept called stare decisis, um, which is a Latin phrase. It means, let the decision stand. And the aim of stare decisis is to bring consistency to legal judgments. It says that what the court decided yesterday should, broadly speaking, be consistent with what the court decided last week. And what the court decides today will be binding on it in future. So what you got last week will be much as what you get today and will probably be broadly similar to what you get in future. But hang on a second. Does this mean the judges are just making the law up as they go along? Not exactly. Writing rules is hard, and writing rules to cover every eventuality is basically impossible. So that's where case law come in, comes in. If you imagine that a statute or a written law uh, draws a picture, the case law colours it in. So, um, for example, we'll take a hypothetical offence of burglary, which for the purposes of this we will define as trespassing on a dwelling in order to commit a crime. A judge dealing with the charge of burglary could be presented with a number of problems. Does a caravan that was being used, uh, that's a mobile home to our American cousins, um, that was being used as a temporary dwelling count? If a person breaks a window and reaches inside to steal property, but doesn't actually enter the dwelling themselves, does that count? A judge in the common law system will have to make a decision, but the decision that he makes will be binding on the judges that come after. So in the case of the caravan, if the court decides that a caravan constitutes a dwelling, that will now become case law and will be recorded as such. So future courts, barring a change in legislation or being overruled by a higher court, won't be able to make their own decision on the matter of the caravan. They'll be bound by the earlier decision. So that means that lawyers working in the common law world need not only to read the legislation, but also be familiar with the case law to do their jobs. But uh, we should probably get motoring. So we'll start with two definitions. Okay, so number one, the criminal law. The criminal law is the body of law which defines the variety of, the act of actions or omissions which are forbidden by the state and which provides a punishment as sanction. Okay, number two, the civil law is the body of law dealing with the resolution of disputes between individuals. It provides a remedy, usually a financial one, to the injured party against the wrongdoer by way of compensation rather than punishment. The civil law also involves the regulatory relationship between the state and individuals. So if one of your rights has been infringed by the state, when you take the state to court, you will, you will, um, and when I say the state, I mean the government, um, you will be proceeding through the civil courts. Okay. Um, now we're going to start with criminal law as that's probably the one you're most familiar with from books and, and TV. So in brief, the criminal law is the law of things that the state has deemed worthy of attention. So it can be obvious. It can be murder, assault, rape, arson, um, very serious crimes like that. Now, obviously, society needs to be protected from the people that do that sort of thing. 
but criminal law can also embrace other less serious offences. So the most obvious category here is road traffic offences. So it's a broad category. The criminal law does cover murder, but it also encompasses, uh, encompasses driving without insurance or not keeping proper control of your dog. Generally speaking, the police will only get involved in criminal matters, okay? They will investigate murders, burglaries and so on, but they won't deal with copyright infringement, land disputes or wills. Criminal law is strictly interpreted because the penalties are tougher than they are in civil law. So you can get fines in both the criminal law and the civil law, but most of the time you won't be going to prison as a result of losing a civil case. In criminal law, you can not only lose your liberty through imprisonment, but you can also lose your life if you live somewhere that has the death penalty. Uh, now, one thing that is common to both the criminal and the civil law is the burden of proof. The burden of proof is different to the standard of proof, which I'll get to in a minute. Okay. Um, essentially, the burden of proof means that if you're accusing someone of something, it's up to you that, to prove that what you're saying is correct. It's not up to them to prove you wrong. You bear the burden of proof. You may have heard the phrase innocent until proven guilty. That's essentially what that means in a criminal context. The accused person doesn't have to defend themselves, though they, they may if they wish. It's on the state to prove that they are guilty. Okay. Uh, moving on from the burden of proof to the standard of proof. The standard of proof can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but one constant in common law jurisdictions is that the standard of proof required is higher in criminal cases than in civil ones. Um, that's because the defendant is in greater jeopardy. So the standard of proof in criminal cases is beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, a very reasonable question to ask right now would be, what is beyond a reasonable doubt? It's a good question, and I'm afraid I don't have a satisfying answer for you. I've heard it defined in a variety of different ways, beyond 95% certain, the same certainty that one might have when buying a house or making another important life decision. But ultimately, none of these are particularly illuminating. Um, now, I've gone with, I'm going to give you a definition here from Murdoch's Dictionary of Irish Law, which I've chosen because it's my cat's favourite. Um, and the two definitions I gave earlier, those were also from Murdoch's Dictionary of Irish Law, but they're broadly applicable across the common law world. But I digress. Um, the definition of beyond a reasonable doubt given here is the concept in the law of evidence whereby an accused is entitled to an acquittal if the prosecution has not established his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Generally, in a criminal trial, the judge, in instructing the jury on the need for a prosecution to establish the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt, will say that if there is a doubt, the accused is entitled to the benefit of the doubt. So essentially, if there is a doubt over the defendant's guilt, you should acquit him, but only if that doubt is a reasonable one. Clear? I know, not really, but it's the best we can do at the moment, and all I could say is, is that a reasonable doubt is a bit like being cool or jazz or falling in love or having faith. You sort of know it when you see it, but it's hard to explain it exactly. So just to recap, 
The criminal law deals with A. Those acts which the state thinks should be forbidden, or at least be controlled. B. Those offences that carry a punishment which can include fines, imprisonment, or even death. Note. Send 3 and 4 pence advises that you check with your local criminal justice provider before committing gross acts of criminal evil, as failure to do so can lead to the death penalty. C. The burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove the guilt of the accused. D. The standard of proof is higher than in civil law. Now, on to the civil law. As I said before, the civil law at its most basic level is the law that governs disputes between individuals. Now, when we say individuals, that can be real people, like, for example, you or me or American songstress Cardi B or the cast of That 70s Show. But it can also include legal people, such as governments, companies, charities and so forth. Things that clearly aren't real people, but that do have some of the rights of people. So, for example, Microsoft, the company, is a legal person in its own right. And Microsoft can own property distinct from Bill Gates, the man, who is a real person. Um, I hope that makes that a bit clearer. Uh, the sanctions associated with civil law are usually fines, but can also be court orders, which I'll get to in a moment. OK, so we'll break that down for a second. Um, Disputes between individuals over something which will be decided by the judge in the court or in some cases a jury. Juries are less common in civil cases, but they're not unheard of. Normally, the case will be tried before a judge and that judge will listen to evidence from the plaintiff. That is the chap who's taking the case in the first place and the defendant, the person who's supposedly done the plaintiff some wrong. And after listening to their evidence and considering the, the law as written, and the case law, the judge will come to a decision. Now, a civil case can involve any kind of dispute, and there's actually a huge variety of types of civil law, but going into them would make this podcast rather longer than it already is, and we'd all be here for the duration of Lent. So, civil law includes, but is not limited to, personal injury, land law, defamation, company law, employment law, equity, contract law, and on, and on, and on, and on. So I'm going to give a few quick examples of some types of civil cases, just to give you a better idea. John crashes his car into Joe. Joe is injured and seeks recompense for his medical expenses and for any lingering effects of the injury. Okay, so that's a personal injury case. John and Joe are two farmers who live next door to each other. John puts up a fence that takes in part of Joe's land and refuses to move it. Joe wants him to move the fence, so he ends up taking him to court. That's a land law case. John tells everyone at work that Joe cheats on his wife. This jam damages Joe's reputation with the people at work, or in legal terms, defames him. Okay? Joe takes John to court in order to seek damages and possibly a public apology. So that would be considered a defamation case. Um... Uh, there are older terms called slander and libel, which I think are still still have common currency in the US. But uh, in Ireland, at least, that, that's, they're now subsumed into one term called defamation. Um, so those are some examples, but I think they illustrate the, the breadth of activity, activity encompassed by the civil law. Okay? You may also have heard of tort law. 
being used as another way of saying civil law. This is true more often than not, but tort is really more of a subtype of civil law than a synonymous term. Um, a tort is a civil wrong done by a person, sometimes called a tortfeasor, but more usually the defendant, to another called a plaintiff, uh, sometimes called the injured party. The wrong arises from a breach of duty imposed on the tortfeasor by law. So uh, going back to the examples we've just given, um, for example, you have a duty not to crash your car into other people or spread malicious rumours about them. Now, the funny name tort comes from Norman French and it means uh, to be twisted uh, or wrong. Um, but uh, it's just referred to as tort now. Now, once the case actually reaches the courts, we have the problem of proof. So like in the criminal court, the burden of proof lies with the person taking the case. So in the example of the car crash I gave before, it's not John's job to prove that he didn't injure Joe when he crashed his car. It's on Joe to prove that he suffered injuries and that John was responsible for those injuries. So if that takes care of the burden of proof, what about the standard of proof? Now, as you remember, when we were talking about criminal cases, the standard of proof was beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil cases, the standard proof, standard of proof is on the balance of probability, which basically boils down to which of the two sides in this case is most likely to be correct based on the evidence before the court and the law. Now, I'm aware that our cousins in the United States use a somewhat different standard based on the preponderance of evidence, and I, don't, I know nothing about this, so I can't really comment on it, beyond saying that it is a lesser standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, to quote Wittgenstein, that whereof we cannot speak, therefore we must remain silent, which is basically a fancy Austrian way of saying I have the foggiest idea, so I'm just going to keep my full mouth shut. Um, so when the court has evaluated the evidence and come to a decision, what happens then? Well, if the defendant has, is found to have wronged the injured party, the court will make an order for damages. Now, damages are a very old legal idea. In the ancient German times, there was the idea of the Ware Guild. Um, and this was also common to Anglo-Saxon England and um, I believe Scandinavia in the Viking period. But basically what it was, was there was an amount of money sometimes or cows or other goods that you would have to pay a man's family if you killed him. Um, ancient Irish law, which was also called Breton law, had similar provisions. And as to how much the damages or fine might be, that varies wildly by jurisdiction. Um, so, uh, you know, a personal injury uh, accident in Ireland might have a higher payout than one in the US or vice versa. Um, it, 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 it's very hard to tell, uh, to be honest. You, you'd need to talk to a specialist. Um, to be honest, it seems to me to be an amalgam, amalgam of one part science to two parts art with a hefty dollop of black magic mixed in. Um, now, normally damages as they exist on this side of the Atlantic are simply meant to restore things to the way they were before the wrong was committed. So if you're injured, you'd get your medical expenses plus whatever the court deemed appropriate to recompense you for any continuing expenses or ongoing harm you might suffer. Um, however, there is such a thing as punitive damages. That's punitive damages. 
far, far more common in the US than here. And essentially, that's where the court decides that the defendant's conduct is so egregious that the fine should not just be a recompense, but it also should also be a punishment um, to deter wrongdoing in future. Um, now, a cynic might say a fine, which is what damages are effectively, merely means legal for those who are rich enough. So the court not only has damages in its arsenal of legal sanctions, but also has court orders. Um, now, a court order is basically being instructed by the court to do a thing or not do a thing. An example given by one of my legal lecturers was, the, was a man who owns a flower garden. Every week, his rich neighbour drives a dirt bike through the flower garden, tearing up the beds and wrecking the place. Now, the actual value of the flowers is probably not huge. And even if the neighbour could be forced by a court to pay for the damage, suppose that he's rich enough to just keep paying for the privilege of destroying this poor man's garden. Now, obviously, that isn't much use to our friend with the flower garden. So what he's actually looking for is an injunction or a court order directing his neighbour not to drive his motorcycle through the garden. That's far more useful because if the motorcyclist breaches the court order, he's in contempt of court. Now, contempt of court can be punished with a fine, but it can also be punished with imprisonment. Now, this is a rare instance where someone can go to prison as a result, albeit an ind indirect result of a civil case. Warning, this section contains a lot of biscuit-related puns. Now, I should point out that case law like we discussed before in criminal law, still applies. So the court is bound by the decisions of the previous courts in that area of law. Um, now, I'm going to give an example here um, of case law and civil law, which is McVitie's versus the UK Revenues, Revenue Commissioners, uh, which is better known as the Jaffa Cakes case, um, which I love because it is wonderful and silly. Um, the case revolved around Jaffa Cakes, which were a type of confection much loved in Britain and Ireland that looks like a biscuit but is made out of sponge like a cake and uh, the problem was there was a dispute over whether Jaffa cakes were a cake or a biscuit now this was relevant because the rate of tax paid on biscuits is higher than that paid on cakes so the question before the court was what makes a biscuit now this could be a question for a philosopher rather than a judge um, a disciple of Plato could argue that there is a single perfect, possibly divine biscuit, which is presumably a chocolate hobnob, um, from which all earthly biscuits are but a, a, a pale imitation. And an Aristotelian might focus on the biscuit in front of us rather than an ideal biscuit. But both would struggle to clearly articulate a definition of biscuitness that would satisfy the hard-headed fellas at the revenue. So lawyers are practical people for the most part, and to paraphrase James Joyce, to do, the, do this job, they must unsheathe their dagger definitions and find the biscuitness that is the whatness of all biscuits. But I digestive. The court looked at the problem and came up with a test. It identified key characteristics of a cake and applied that test. Um, the case as a whole is more complica complicated, but I'm just going to take three parts of their reasoning here. Okay, part one, Jaffa cakes are cakes because they're called cakes. The courts rejected this on the grounds that simply calling something a cake doesn't make it a cake. 
number two, cakes are made with batter rather than dough. The egg, flour and sugar mixture used in Jaffa cakes give them the texture of sponge cake rather than biscuit. Three, on going stale, biscuits tend to go soft while cakes become hard. Um, and ultimately they decided that Jaffa cakes were in fact cakes. Um, now it's unlikely that telling a cake from a biscuit is ever going to be a life or death issue for you, but it did matter to McVitie's, the biscuit maker, because there was quite a lot of money on the line. So if this question ever comes before a court again, there is now decided case law on how one distinguishes a cake from a biscuit. And two key parts of the, of the test are, what is it made of and does it go hard when it's stale? This decision is of course binding on future courts unless it's overruled by a higher court because as you know, that's how, that's how case law works. That's probably enough about biscuits for the time being. So just to recap, I'm gonna go over some of the things that we've covered. Number one, what is it? Criminal law is the body of law that defines the variety of actions or omissions that are forbidden by the state and for which the state will punish you. Civil law is the body of law that deals with disputes between individuals, though those individuals may also be organisations like companies, churches, charities, or the paramilitary wing of the Wicklow Ramblers Association. Number two, who deals with it? If you have a problem with a crime, uh, that is something that's covered by the criminal law, you'll need to call a police officer. The courts and the lawyers may get involved later, but your first port of call would be the police. Now, if you have a problem that isn't a crime, you should talk to a lawyer. Now, because the civil law is so vast, you may need to talk to a specialist. So if you want to divorce your spouse, you need a family lawyer. If you need to sell some land, you'll need a land lawyer and so, and so on. So don't go to the police to sort out your late husband's will. Don't call your lawyer to tell them that someone stole in your car. Number three, where does the burden of proof rest? As a quick rule of thumb, the burden of proof always lies on the side that is making an assertion. So if Joe is accused of robbery, it's up to the state to prove that he did it. If Joe is accused of injuring John through negligence, it's up to John to prove that Joe did it. Number four, what is the standard of proof? The standard of proof in criminal cases is beyond a reasonable doubt. The standard of proof in civil cases is on the balance of probabilities. Now, as I said before, this can and does vary between jurisdictions, but as a good rule of thumb, the standard is always higher in criminal cases because the stakes are higher. Number five, what are the punishments? In the criminal law, the punishments are more severe and include fines, imprisonment, and possibly, depending on jurisdiction, death. In the civil law, the remedy is usually money in the form of damages paid by the wrongdoer to the injured party. But if damages or damages alone aren't an appropriate remedy, the court can also order the wrongdoer to do or not do something via court order. Now, I've gone on rather longer than I expected to, and I've disappeared down some rabbit holes along the way, but I think we've covered the basics. If there's something significant that you think I've missed, you can leave a message here at anchor.fm forward slash Conrad dash Kinch, or you can record something and send it to me at conrad.kinch at gmail.com. Um, and obviously you'll find those in the show notes. Now, also, I'm a bit unsure about how to proceed with future legal episodes. I'm thinking I might do some short episodes about famous pieces of case law. 
Um, but if you have a preference, are longer episodes like this better or would you prefer shorter? Um, other than that, not much else to say. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've learned something and I'll catch you at the next one. You have been listening to Send Three and Fourpence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books and the law. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, like and subscribe. And most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. And if you didn't like this podcast, please like, share and subscribe. And most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. Thank you and goodbye.